Hello, my magical friends. My name's Ayumi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and you're listening to Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Whether it's your first or 174th time listening, we welcome you to our space to celebrate magical girls from every corner of the world. We have some news, and I've watched a few things, and then we'll get to today's topic. So let's get started. Apologies for the late episode this week. A lot of things are going on in real life, which caused me to be extremely busy, and I still am, but things are going to be okay, especially since next week is the final episode of Season 7. And speaking of which, as a friendly reminder, if you have any questions for this Magical Girl Sommelier segment that we're doing, um, I'll relink the form in the show notes of this episode. You have until Sunday to submit them this week. So if you have any questions like, oh, do you think this show was a Magical Girl series? Or what do you think of this particular trope? Or have you ever seen a Magical Girl that covers this topic? Anything like that, right? I'm definitely looking forward to answering all your questions. So getting to the news. So we're going to start off with a a simple but nice little piece of news. So if you're a fan of Magical Warrior Diamond Heart, this now has a Steam link. So you can now go wishlist this on Steam. So yeah, just wanted to let you all know about that little update for that game, which is still going, you know, little by little, Pion is always working on this uh, little game of his. Yeah. Uh, Next, Precure All-Stars F has officially just started to wind down airing in theaters here in Japan, but luckily it also is going to be enjoyed around the world. So they did have their little showing in Italy at Luca Comics. There are a few Italian social media folks you can check out to see what their experience was like, but it looks generally like it was a very positive reaction understandably, because it was a very good movie. But we did get the news that in December, this movie will be coming to Hong Kong. Now, it's my understanding that this will be the very first time this happens. And the other thing that is very intriguing is that the trailer for this Hong Kong release includes both Chinese, or yeah, Cantonese Chinese, and English subtitles. I do think this is mostly owing to the fact that Hong Kong does have a significant English-speaking population, but I do find it very fascinating that they have gone through that, which means that there might be official English subtitles for a Precure movie. Next, Magical Girl Riska, which is a comic adapted from a light novel series, will be releasing its latest volume, volume 6, on November 9th, which is, oh, today. So if you're a fan of that series and can read Japanese, you should check that out. And finally, in a very interesting piece of news, um, Catch Teeny Ping, which is currently in season four in Korea, but has only aired season one in Japanese, has now gotten an official comic release. So this is a very, very short, literally three-page little comic that debuted in Puchigumi magazine, which is a magazine for very young children. But It is illustrated by Pink Hanamori of Mermaid Melody fame, so that's really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to see that they are trying to continue to market this show. Uh, There still has yet to be any announcement about season two of Catch Teeny Ping being dubbed into Japanese. At the moment, it's only season one, 
they did finish airing on Kid Station this year, and now it's just like advertisement for it is just hey, it's on streaming. So that's neat. So that's all for Magical Girl news this week. So let's move on to what I've been watching and reading. So first thing I wanted to shout out was Rainbow Bubble Gem. So this series, of course, is currently airing in both China and Korea, which are the two countries where the companies are from. So that makes sense. The Korean version has been posting clips and so on on YouTube. You know, all the previews and stuff are also there. But they actually posted episode one with official English subtitles, so I watched it and was very delighted. And then I noticed that the previous episode they had uploaded, episode four, now also has English subtitles. So I rewatched that as well, and it was a lot easier to watch now that I know what's going on. Both episodes are really interesting. The first one, of course, giving you a lot of lore about how the show works, the magic system, etc. Very interestingly, the characters are all like seven years old, and it's implied that they're basically activating too young to be full-on magical girls. So that's a little bit of interesting pressure. But yeah, it was super cute. I love Purple Star as a lead. She's a lot of fun, and I cannot wait to continue watching the rest of the series. So I am hoping and praying they will continue to put. Further episodes online. I believe the Korean airing has gotten up to episode twenty-two as of this recording. So we'll see what happens after that. After they get through season one, my next, of course, there was no Soaring Sky precure this week owing to the marathon on Sunday morning. But there was an Otada precure, right? Precure for Bloom, and well, needless to say, uh, if you speak English and are a precure fan, there was quite a lot of discourse this weekend. Now I knew that there was going to be a lot of animosity, and again, very understandably so. It is a very problematic pairing. However, I was really surprised by how much people were surprised by it. If that makes sense, this was always going to happen, and probably more is going to happen with these two. It's just the nature of this particular series and doing a sequel of this series. It's like unavoidable. That being said, if you even remove that aspect or that questionable nature, it was still for me an interesting episode, and it was really nice to see even more interactions between characters who don't usually interact. And we also see a lot of interesting new lore about what's going on on the magic world side of things, right? So certainly a lot of interesting questions. Also, I was very delighted to find out that I was correct in my transliteration of the villain's name back when they announced the character. Before the show started, a small thing, but I can have some pride in that. Next, in seasonal comics, I decided to read Magical Girl Two Hundred One. So this came out last week, or I guess a few weeks ago. So this had two chapters. So once chapter two was made available to watch or to read rather online, I decided to give both a try, and I was pleasantly surprised. So. The main thing is, of course, if you look at any image of the series, you'll see that the villain girl is very, very scantily clad, and very busty. However, it turns out she's an adult, so you have that to worry less about. And as far as comparisons to the demon girl next door, I mean, there's a little bit of that, but honestly, not really. So the basic premise is this girl Shinobu Fujiyama. She had 
gotten a job because she wanted to get a very special exclusive plushie of her favorite character because she's a bit of a nerd and so she signed up for this job which turned her into a villain that that is generally called sexy fujiyama she's some sort of like ninja thing that's pretty cool but she also really needs a race so she really needs to defeat the local magical girl who's named princess mamu and uh wouldn't you know it princess mamu moves next door doesn't know that she is a villain and they end up having a lot of interactions. So basically, it seems like the episodes are her getting to befriend this magical girl under the pretense of just being her friendly neighbor and her being a girl that really wants to have friends because in this world, magical girls don't uh, live with their families for safety reasons. And so she's been living alone for all this time. It has definitely got some like parodic elements and it, that's really interesting. So yeah, I actually think that this might be pretty decent. And you know, again, you've got a sexy villainess, but she's an adult. She is keeping the job. She could quit, I suppose, but she's not. And so it's fine. Yeah, I think that's all I have to say there. And then as far as shows I have finished watching, I finished watching the second season of Lynx Club this week. It was interesting. It's different. Um, of course, we get the addition of Aisha, which is very exciting. Though I did watch the rainbow dub, which meant that I met her as Layla, but that's neither here nor there. Aisha actually kind of grew pretty quickly to become one of my favorite characters, trying to fit in with this already established friend group and feeling a bit left out sometimes, super relatable, and yeah, I thought she was really cool. I found that they didn't do a good job of explaining her magic at all uh, in the actual context of the narrative. But I figured it out over time. There were definitely some really weird subplots in this season. I kind of feel very much confused about everything that happened with the Downland people. And also there was that one episode which was removed officially because it's so horrifically racist. Considering the past season's problematic episode, this one really went in a whole other direction. Um, but yeah, I think overall it was still really interesting to see them start to establish what this show is doing moving forward, and I'm definitely excited for a season three because I hear that's really popular. So that's all I have to share. Um, if I watch any more shows, I am very behind on pretty much everything else, including other non-magical girl things, so I will be trying to my best to catch up. So if there's an update there, I will let you know in next week's episode. But with that, I think it's finally time to get to today's topic. So for the last main episode of this season, we are going to the 80s. Specifically to Pastel Yumi, the magic idol. And no, she's not an idol. It's fine. We'll get more into that later. So this series is, hmm, it's got a lot of things going for it that are really good and a lot of things that are really wild. So we, we're going to get into the, uh, the, the problematic stuff in a moment because there's a list. But it was still really fun to watch this show and talk about it. And for that, I got back um, Jack Harrison Quintana, who has been on in previous episodes, also talking about older Magical Girl shows. You know, I've loved collecting these uh, guests who are very into older Magical Girls. 
because, you know, there are quite different and there are a lot of things you have to be aware of when getting into older shows. Of course, uh, as I mentioned, this show has a lot to warn about. Now, of course, there are a lot of things that are just like generally normal for the time, but um, just to get into things. So I'm about to talk about death, so I just want to warn about that real quick. But in the actual content of the show, we get into fat phobia slash ableism, eating disorders, alcoholism, misogyny, misgendering, pedophilia, sexual assault, and general sexualization of minors. So the reason I bring up death, which is very important, is there are two kind of scandals around uh, this series, kind of after the fact. Well, scandal's not the right term in one case, but basically things that have nothing to do with the actual content of the show, but need to be mentioned. The first thing being the um, voice actor for Yumi, slash the girl who does the music for the show, Mariko Shiga, who is honestly um, an amazing singer. I love the opening and ending for this show. But unfortunately, she is no longer with us. So she um, had a very, very short career. You know, as a young teen, she got into the world of uh, idols. She put out a few songs. And then she decided to leave the business in order to focus on college. So she moved to the U.S. for university. And just a few months after moving, ended up perishing in a car accident in Flagstaff, Arizona. She was not quite 20 years old. I think she was still 19. And I don't need to say how tragic that is that we lost someone so young. She was so talented. Her life was just starting. That's why I wanted to just mention as well, even if you find that the content of this show is too much for you, and I completely understand because it is wild, I do hope that you will at least give the music a try because her music is really lovely and that's a legacy she has left us in this world. I love the songs and will be listening to them all the time, for sure, from now on. And then the other thing, the other controversy about Pastel Yumi involves the release in English. So this show was picked up by Retro Crush and you can still watch this now officially on Tubi. And I noticed this as well when watching the series, that there were some inconsistencies as we got halfway through the series, uh, especially with the subtitles, because I was also watching it on Tubi. I had to read the English subtitles and sometimes just be completely flabbergasted and confused that the subtitles were saying things that were not what the people were saying, sometimes the opposite of what they were saying, or a gross misunderstanding. I was, yeah, just generally shocked. And then I found out there was a controversy about the subtitles, involving plagiarism. Apparently, when they first put this out, the official thing from Retro Crush was that they only got subtitles for the first half of the series. And so in order to finish up the show, they stole fan subs from an actual fan subber who had done this established translation of this show. Shocking. And also, like, I did not know you could sue someone for stealing fan subs. So that's a very interesting thing to think about, legally speaking. But yeah, it was controversial, so they took down Pastel Yumi for a while, and then when they brought it back, they got these really, really bad subtitles for the second half of the series. So if you watch the show, I do want you to give it a chance, if you can stomach the problematic stuff, because despite it, it is still an interesting show, I think, a very interesting piece of magical girl media. Just keep that in mind as well as you watch the second half. If things seem to start not making sense, there's a reason for that. 
So yeah, it's unfortunate. I hope at some point they correct the mistake, but that does involve money. So you know how that is with companies. But yeah, so I think that's everything I have to say. Um, thank you for listening this far, and I hope you're ready to enjoy this episode about Pastel Yumi with Jack Harrison Quintana. So uh, we are here to talk about the magic idol Pastel Yumi from 1986 and I'm very delighted to have on a returning guest. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Jack Harrison Quintana. I use he, him, his and I'm so happy to be back. Yeah. So interesting thing I've noticed from the last two times you were on, mm. the first time you were on to talk about Poitrine and then Poitrine did make a brief appearance in Sentai, kind of. Mm -hmm. And then you were on to talk about Loon Loon and now we have an announcement of a Loon Loon spinoff mm, <laughs> series coming. That's true. Yeah. So who knows what will happen now that we are on uh, to talk about this show. But before we get into you, me, um, what have you been enjoying in the genre? since your last time on the podcast? Well, you know, I'm always watching and reading in the genre. Um, I obviously just finished a kind of rewatch of Yumi and I reread the manga and watched her OVA. But before that, I had gotten my hands on the DVD copies for the dub of Princess Night. Oh. <laughs> Which is not necessarily good per se, but it's very interesting because, you know, not only did they dub it, but they reordered the episodes, they changed mm. some things, took out some footage. Um, and so that's all very fascinating for me, having watched the original Japanese. Right. And because, you know, my real passion within the genre is the early stuff. So going mm -hmm. back to Princess Night is very fun for me. Yeah, so you for you, uh, Princess Knight is definitely a magical girl series. Well, it's that's just such a great question. I mean, I for <laughs> me, it is because in the manga, it starts in kind of a Christian heaven, and they give her the heart of a boy and the heart of a girl. To me, that's kind of enough magic, right? Like that that's already speculative. That's not like sort of based in realism. So so that's adequate for me. But I, I totally understand and respect the people who define it as an ancestor more than a, a actual piece from the genre. Interesting. Very fair. I still don't have an opinion because I still have yet to watch it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I am definitely looking forward to it. It's it's on the list, on the, the very long list of things. <laughs> it's definitely worth it. Yeah. So do you know like about when this particular dub was made? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know exactly when off the top of my head it is it does uh, from kind of the content of it it does seem like old <laughs> which i guess <laughs> isn't very specific but okay. um it definitely predates kind of like the way that tv was made or even dubbed um when i was a kid in the 80s mm. so i think it's i think it's quite old i i should look it up interesting yeah definitely um would be interested to hear more about that because I think that is definitely one thing because that means someone watched that right as a youth probably so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah as their first introduction to Princess Knight but awesome so 
I guess uh, with that, we can get into Yumi. So I guess the first thing we have to say off the bat, so this is part of the Studio Piero line, uh, the 80s line. This is uh-huh. number four of four before they take a very long break <laughs> uh-huh. in their Magical Girl series, but also the shortest and definitely breaks a lot of rules. Uh-huh. The other thing that is important to note is that even though Idol is in the title, uh-huh, uh-huh. she is not an Idol. <laughs> This particular line of magical girls started off with Creamy Mommy, who was very much a magical idol. And then we have Persia and then Emmy, who is more of a magician type. But yeah, uh, Yumi is very unique in that she is not an idol at all. Though, like the past series, her voice actor does do theme songs for the show. And uh, the other thing that's kind of major is, I don't know if it's because of that, but uh, Yumi does not age up like uh-huh, the others. Uh-huh. But a lot of the other kind of tropes that are established by this series are still there, um, which we'll get to. Yumi is a uh, 10-year-old girl who is kind of classic Majoko in a lot of ways, right? Uh-huh. She's she's called a tomboy, but doesn't dress uh-huh. like a tomboy, which is yes. very Majoko, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and she, you know, she definitely gets in a lot of trouble all the time. Her only two friends that we really see uh-huh. her hang out with uh, regularly, Kenta and Tsuyoshi, are both boys. And yeah, she's just like not necessarily known for being ladylike. And she does have some feelings about that. She, she definitely has some episodes where she uh-huh. explores that a little bit. Um, but basically, you know, she is this girl who has a natural love for flowers because she was raised with parents who run a flower shop. Uh-huh. Uh, one day she is, uh, well, while getting in trouble with the, the local rich lady, Miss Fukuno Koji, uh-huh. she sees that she's about to step on a dandelion and she stops everything to make sure that this dandelion does not get crushed. And these fairies who are, have been looking for someone of her caliber floating around and I say fairies, but they're like very much like these giant fluffy kind of marshmallow. Things. Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely marshmallows. <laughs> very cute. Uh, we learn their names are Keshimaru and Kakimaru, uh, but they they see her and they decide she is the right one for the job. She also happens to really love drawing. Mm-hmm. So she is granted the uh, magic power to draw anything and bring it to life, though there are a lot of rules about the magic. Um, <laughs> You know, the main thing being she can only draw and bring to life one thing at a time. It uh-huh. will disappear over time, um, sometimes very quickly, sometimes not quickly at all. Uh-huh. It doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason in that respect. But she also can never draw the same thing twice, which is an interesting aspect. But yeah, so um, yeah, Jack, what is your history with Yumi? So I think I told you in one of the previous episodes that during the early pandemic days, I sat down and decided to basically watch five to 10 episodes of every Magical Girl series that predated Sailor Moon. Mm-hmm. And that's how I filled in a lot of the gaps in my knowledge of the genre, at least on TV. And I, like you, had seen Creamy Mommy before, but that was the only Studio Piero Magical Girl series I had seen. So when I went back and watched some, at least, of the others, I was really drawn to Yumi in particular. Well, actually, I think that a lot of the things I like about it may have been part of why it didn't last as long and why it wasn't as popular in general. Um, So, for example, 
I have never really particularly been drawn to the aging up trope present in all of the other Studio Piero Magical Girl series except this one and is in Minky Momo, which immediately preceded Creamy Mommy and in some ways set the tone for this series. Um, so that was never interesting to me. So I was kind of a little bit extra drawn to Yumi because she didn't have that trope. Similarly, I'm not a person who is like especially drawn to magical idols. I think they can be fun, right? Like I like the whole genre, but it's not my specific thing. And Emmy and Mommy both have a little bit of that as well as Lala. So again, I sort of came to uh, Yumi by default, even though I don't say that to mean that I like her any less, but in a way, just the fact that this show was a little bit different, uh, like that she wants to be a comic book artist instead of an idol when she grows up, that there's not so much focus on her exploring the world like in an adult body. Like those are the things that initially brought me to Yumi. And then I think, you know, I fell in love with just the character. And like you said, I think her gender stuff is interesting. I find her energy really fun. I like her supporting cast. And and so that's why we're here today. <laughs> I see. I see. I wonder if it's also just because like her, like for me, she reminded me so much of the 70s shows. And so like it kind of felt like I was watching like an 80s version of one of those shows rather than like a Studio Piero show, like granted, there are a lot of interesting things about this show. I think the animation mm -hmm. is really interesting. That being said, this is also a very short series and also a series that has a lot of clip show episodes mm -hmm. where like they and they've managed to find very different ways to need to go back to past scenes. And then they like just play out the entire scene with no commentary and anything. And it's like, <laughs> well, it's happening. But it's an interesting kind of end to this particular era of uh, Magical Girls, a very short era, mind you, but still like it's kind of seems connected to what seems to be, have been going on at the time based on what I've read so far and what we've also worked on together, like looking at, um, you know, Lyrical Lena and stuff like how mm. this era, we did have these idle Magical Girls, but then it died down very quickly as people lost interest in the idol types. Uh -huh. By the 90s, we were just in full hero mode. So it's interesting to see like the kind of transition from idols back to mm -hmm. a Majoko kind of series. It was like kind of fun, but also very wild. <laughs> the characters are a little out there sometimes. And some of the plots were definitely a little concerning or mm -hmm. yeah, there are a lot of different things to talk about and a lot of like interesting things. Yeah, just all over with the show itself. But um, yeah, so we generally get like a very, very episodic show like uh -huh. most of the episodes kind of in the middle more or less could be washed out of order i mean there's an episode that introduces tsuyoshi right yumi's other friend who's a so boy that like they like they become friends because they start fighting in school which is uh -huh. interesting but most of the time she's spending her time with kenta who is definitely her best friend and also has a very very big crush on her and he's definitely too shy to tell her or whatever he's very um abrasive about even trying to hint at the idea mm -hmm. but um they spend a lot of time together and um yumi also has a very very big crush on kenta's older brother kyohei who i actually could not figure out how old kyohei 
is mm-hmm. because he seems almost adult coded and we don't see him in school or anything so it does seem like he is an adult like he works at the flower shop right that seems to be kind of how well we don't know exactly the full story but it seems to be that's how yumi came to know him and stuff mm-hmm. but he also has the very interesting hobby of hand gliding mm-hmm. and <laughs> does it a lot and defies physics <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting and it even becomes like plot relevant and everything but it's a very odd character where just because of like all the things he's kind of supposed to be mostly seems seemingly convenient for the the plot and in Yumi's own storyline and everything it just makes him not make a lot of sense but mm-hmm. still he's there to be uh young and handsome and very popular with everyone um mm-hmm. <laughs> apparently And like you said, he kind of brings in the theme of flight, right? Which I think is a theme throughout. One funny Mm. thing about the fact that you can watch the episodes out of order is at one point they realize that Keshimaru and Kakimaru can carry her and so they can effectively fly as a threesome. And I sort of felt like, huh, would that have been useful in the first 10 episodes? (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. But there is a lot of flight in this show, which I think is fun. It's true. There's a lot of a lot of floating around. Of course, Kishimaru and Kakimaru can also mm-hmm. they themselves just float around, generally speaking. But the kind of different things going on thematically are are interesting as well. Like in lieu of having her age up, she's definitely still thinking about when she's older, what she wants to be when she grows up, how she wants to, you know, be a certain way. You know, she's trying to figure out her ideals and Meanwhile, like her parents are like, uh, whatever, just be a kid, you're a kid, you know. We also have her grandfather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> her grandfather is very interesting, Mr. Dankichi, who like lives in a treehouse separately from everyone else. But he's like, he claims to be an adventurer, but I don't know the legitimacy of this claim. It's <laughs> definitely a little up in the air. <laughs> not just claims to be an adventurer but has a very concrete idea about what that means right like yes like almost like he's in a a guild or something right he has all these different rules he's got this like notion that this is some kind of like passed down the bloodline thing and we don't you know we can either confirm nor deny that being true right but he's very passionate about this idea and wants to pass down this wisdom to his son, um, you know, Ichiro, right, Yumi's father, but he is not interested because he loves his flower shop and he loves mm-hmm. taking care of flowers. And so, you know, in an early episode, Yumi was like, oh, I'll do it. I'll be the the disciple. And it gets pretty bad pretty fast, right? <laughs> There's a gorilla attack and everything. So, you And know, it, it is just, kind of yeah. one of the areas that the show tries to question gender. I don't know how successfully we can say they do it, but it's definitely like, oh, the son runs a flower shop, but the granddaughter wants to do what the grandfather wants his male heir to do, right? Like, you know, it's not so out on a limb of gender norms, but I I can Mm -hmm. see the show trying. Right, right. Like, they're literally, like, channeling Tarzan and stuff when, (laughs) like, it can be a little ridiculous, but... Yumi and Kent are both kind of equally interested in her grandfather's stories about uh, his adventures. And these are all probably not true either for the record, but you know, they're, they're fantastical stories in any case, but he always seems to like have a solution to things or whatever, but at the same time, it's 
still suspicious though he does have a pet camel Emai, mm -hmm. who is an interesting kind of side character is <laughs> mostly just in the background just kind of chilling out but still seems to be a, a part of the family in, in any case i know in a way that camel is like his magical girl you know animal sidekick right but... <laughs> sure sure yeah yeah he's an interesting uh character an interesting kind of like parental figure for yumi as well because mm -hmm. you know that's kind of normal for grandparents to not have this full responsibilities that the parents do so they can get away with um, being a little outside the box with some things with teaching but yeah, so her parents are, I think, also kind of interesting as reg in regards to like the idea of, of gender roles. There's even an episode where they fight so hard they try to swap gender roles. Mm -hmm. Her father is a bit more softer and, and gentle and her mother is more strict, which in that in itself is like kind of common in a lot of media. But there's definitely this idea that like she is the one who is more outgoing and tries to take action a lot more than he does. Mm -hmm. A lot of focus on on their relationship as well, as it affects Yumi. <laughs> yeah, possibly a little too much, but hmm, hmm. I do like them. Yeah, our kind of other like major characters we see all the time are again the the rich lady of Kurokoji, who is um, you know definitely has a very high sense of herself. Is definitely very very rich, just kind mm -hmm. of ridiculously so, and seems to be like this very emblematic of high society. And if we should mention that they live in a place called Flower Town, we can assume it's Japan, but like it's kind of also seems like not Japan in some ways. Um, mm, that's interesting. I actually hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, because like they live in Flower Town and the other major place that they uh, can go to in their area is called Big Town. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Right. She's a bit flamboyant and lavish and all this stuff, but uh, she hates children. She's allergic to flowers. And uh -huh. she just, yeah, is, is always a kind of, I think she generally sees all the kids as a thorn in her side, but especially Yumi. Uh -huh. Yeah, there's just something about her. And then her main servant is Kunimitsu, who is this really weird guy who, like, from the very beginning, like, his initial introduction, we learned that he is just terrible to anyone that he can get away with being terrible to. He's greedy. He's just generally not a good person. He's even rude to Fukuro Koji. It's, it's a lot. And he's basically always been a bad guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, what did you think of like the kind of, I guess, earlier episodes as we get introduced more to the, the characters and their relationships and stuff? I think it's fun. I think you can see really quickly that it's really different from some of the other Studio Piero Magical Girl shows and some of the tropes that have been laid out. Like, Yumi doesn't have a transformation sequence, which doesn't mean that she doesn't have kind of recycled animation when she does her magic, but right. she doesn't transform. Not only does she not transform into an adult, she doesn't transform into like a magical form either. Right. I love the idea that she's an artist. I love seeing her kind of try out her powers. Uh, one of the things I love about the genre in general is that it allows the young girl characters to be mischievous and to use their magic for kind of selfish reasons, not just to save people or save the world, even though we, we get there usually, or often we do. So I love just seeing her, you know, draw crazy stuff. There's one episode early on where her room gets full of things that she's drawn and they have to be like, okay, I guess uh, there's a limit here. We can't, <laughs> we can't go too crazy. Um, 
Yeah, and it's fun to see. What did you think of the early stuff? Yeah, I also really liked it. Like, I think, you know, in general, some of the plot does get a little out there even early on, but I have found myself always just feeling like, what weirdness is Yumi going to get into this time? (laughs) Which I think is a good appeal for, for any show, really. Needing to come back to figure out what happens next and, like, how is she going to tackle this new problem and stuff? Mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of interesting kind of possible creativity. And I feel like they did a good job of like giving her kid logic in a lot of ways. Cause some of the mm-hmm. stuff she does is like, it doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of episodes. Well, not a lot because there's not a lot of episodes in general, but there are a few episodes <laughs> where she, you know, kind of doesn't use magic until the last second of an episode. Mm-hmm. Like she's trying to solve things without magic or she tries to come up with a magic solution and it doesn't quite work out. Right. So yeah, I think there was like a lot going on with her just trying to figure stuff out and like trying to figure out the rules. Like a lot of early episodes are her just trying to remember the rules, which uh-huh. gets her into some trouble sometimes. But yeah, I think like the general idea of the show is really good there's a lot of beautiful animation in the show generally speaking there is there is amazing scenes (laughs) but there's clearly a lot of cutting yeah for me as a person who likes the really old stuff seeing Mm -hmm. this animation is really thrilling Mm. and really that's part of why i like the studio piero series even though there's a lot of weird stuff here that throws me (laughs) off like the animation is beautiful yeah like everything is just like really fun to watch just like the most random scenes will just be like stunningly animated for no reason seemingly (laughs) but Uh but yeah i mean they had a lot of um that are clip show episodes and then she has a sequence for using the magic which does involve a song so I don't uh-huh. know about overall impact of this show on like Magical Girl fans, but I do think they were hearkening back to Pastel Yumi when doing Star Twinkle Precure because that show mm. has imagination and drawing. And when they transform, they're drawing parts of their outfit and they sing along too. So mm. yeah, that's kind of, it just reminded me of that a lot when I was watching this show. I definitely had a good time despite all the problems, <laughs> but yeah. So do you have any, I guess, favorite episodes early on in the show? Well, not necessarily early on, but I guess I would say that I generally appreciate that there are character focus episodes for a lot of the side cast. And I'm just a person who loves to focus on the absolute most obscure characters. (laughs) And so one of my favorite episodes is 18 where they focus on the camel mm-hmm. um which when i first watched it i was just like wow i cannot believe they're doing this this is amazing um, yeah and, you know uh, like all the other this because this is it is technically a clip show episode right uh but it is still like all of the ones that they have are are like the, the plots are very strange because the very first clip show episode, I believe it's yeah, Keshimaru and Yumi have to physically go inside the baton, her her you know her magic mm-hmm. wand, in order to find Kakimaru, who was accidentally flattened by Fukuto Koji, because when she uses her her magic wand, like the flower petals go inside it, and that's how the magic activates, I guess. And apparently it sucked up little flat Kakimaru. Uh, so they have mm-hmm. to dive through the memories to, to save her um, and find her. And then, yeah, in this one, in 18, the plot is that um, Imai is 
waiting outside the movie theater while they go enjoy their i believe they're watching like a robot battle movie or something that uh mm -hmm. grandpa donkichi is really into <laughs> but yeah suddenly we hear the camel talking right he has his own voice and then he talks about how he jokes that he's like 2000 years old and it's really mm -hmm. weird but then like he talks about how you know he has one love this camel named utako and suddenly utako shows up behind him and she talks about how she's been like tricked into being sold by the circus or something like that right uh -huh, uh -huh. and has completely lost faith in humanity and so it's up to him to explain the goodness of humanity by talking about yumi and that's how we get the clip show part right and it was like so wild as a concept mm -hmm. you know the main thing being like the camel does not speak in any other episode right, of right, the right. show the, the camel does not have a personality in any other episode right right so where is this coming from this doesn't make any sense there's a part in the end that implies that yumi can talk to the other camel and communicate with her it's really weird but yeah it was like him just explaining all these stories about Yumi's goodness to try to explain that humans can be good and thus this camel should not give up on the goodness of humanity. It is really wild. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and just like you said, you know, if you're going to give me a clip show, at least couch it in an interesting frame story involving an obscure character. I mean, absolutely, that's a quick way to win me over. <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting choice for sure. Like, you know, they had to figure out different ways, right, to get these clip shows in so that they could save, you know, budget, etc. And so, you know, they did a really good job of writing some really bonkers ways to have to introduce us to these stories again. Because, um, you know, I've watched a fair amount of these shows now. I mean, like a lot of kids shows generally. And most of the time, clip show episodes are people all just gather around being like, hey, remember that one time? Remember that one time? Mm -hmm. So this is a lot more interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, for sure. I guess the tail end, like the second half of the series, definitely has a lot of interesting episodes that do kind of focus on various characters. Like 16, we have an episode that is about kenta's crush on yumi and like involves the the circus and getting the the mumps and the measles uh -huh. it's a very uh sweet silly episode about you know kids having crushes and all that very very pure in a lot of ways mm -hmm. one thing that's very interesting about this show and i don't know if it's a, due to the length of it but you know we have this very clear thing that's actually a very much a mirror of the dynamics of the past pure shows where kenta is yumi's age and has a huge crush on her yumi uh -huh. is has a huge crush on kyohei who is a lot older and that is like uh -huh. the dynamic of the other shows as well now usually there's also the age up dynamic as well but in this case it's just normal 10 year old yumi and they don't actually really conclude the romance on either side right there is never a time like because um she gives him this illusion of a circus with her magic. He thinks he's dreaming and thus confesses his feelings to her, mm -hmm. which, you know, she does absolutely nothing about. And then likewise, we do get an episode uh, in 19, which we can talk about a little bit more in a second, um, which is about Kyohei and shows how much she cares about Kyohei and how he seems to respect her feelings or at least like respect, you know, her attention. 
but doesn't actually do anything weird about the fact that this 10 year old is in love with him. So I think that it's very interesting that they kind of left it at that. Mm-hmm. Cause like, for example, with creamy mommy, there's, you know, the, the same kind of dynamic. And then at the very, very end, we find out in like this epilogue in the credits that like, you know, she ends up with what's his face. And so it's like, that's cute and all for the people who care about the romance. But here it's like, there are kids that like each other or the kids that have crushes and nothing happens. And I kind of love that. <laughs> yeah, me too. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I definitely have kind of a headcanon of Yumi as a queer character. Ooh, and yeah. I feel like the way that the romance plots are handled and ultimately not kind of sewn up contributes to that reading. Because, I mean, obviously she does have a crush on Kyohei, but it it isn't presented as something that even really could be acted on it's not really presented as like real in a way Mm -hmm. and sometimes I even feel like I mean there's a lot of focus on Yumi's gender to my eyes as a viewer she doesn't necessarily always appear so masculine but the people around her definitely are talking like she is unknowably masculine little girl and and there is an episode where she playing baseball and comes back to a cafe or somewhere yeah she comes back home to the shop yeah okay to the shop Mm -hmm. and i guess particularly her hair is up in the baseball cap yeah and a bunch of people mistake her for a boy and sometimes it feels like and so i find that all you know very interesting she has to she goes to cotillion she goes to like a manor school to learn to be kind of like a more properly feminine person. And then she instead uh, plays like rock songs at the (laughs) final dance. Yeah, very 80s. So 80s, so queer to me. I love it. And then it almost feels like at times the romance stuff is as if to assuage us as the viewers. Like, listen, Yumi is a little bit masculine, but we're not saying she's a lesbian. You know what I mean? (laughs) Don't worry Hmm. about that. She has a crush on an adult, on a man. So don't worry, don't worry. I mean, I definitely respect reading her as queer. There's definitely a, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of magical girls, but especially a lot of Majoko definitely have this particular dynamic of, I don't know if it's almost like because they're a main character of a kid's show, they have to be seemingly more masculine because they like have to be more active in their own story if that makes sense Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so i think that there's kind of always a little bit of that especially in the older shows so for me i think that the the romance aspect i mean it's quite literally in the opening and ending of the song the the show right like the opening is like just her with kyohei clearly like her hanging out with kyohei and like being very interested in him and it's like a love song both of the, the songs are love songs and then the ending mm-hmm. is like her floating around with Kenta in space on bubbles. Sure. Mm-hmm. So it's like very clear that like her relationship to these two uh, to these two characters is is pretty big, and there is always a known romantic element to that. That doesn't mean that like she can't be queer. Obviously, she could be read as bisexual, or like also sure, you know sure, there's you know compad to consider as well. But yeah, I think it's like an interesting factor. I don't know if that's like the intention of the creators. Oh but, like, no, right? no, but I'm yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that it's not. Although I, I'm sure I agree. I'm sure that it's not. It's definitely the, just the lens that I bring. Mm-hmm. But I do think that as you point out about the title. 
there does seem to be some tension here between the way that the studio wanted to kind of present and market the show versus what's actually in the show. So it's similar. It just reminds me of like they put idol in the title, but there's no idol content, right? Right. Similarly, like we're really foregrounding the romantic plots in the opening and ending, but are the romantic plots really the driver of the plot? I mean, sometimes, but not all the time. Yeah. Which I appreciate. Yeah. I think it's healthy for a kid's show to show that one, that kids experience love uh, of, of a romantic variety, but also that like two, it's not end game because they are children. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. But then also, yeah, there's a lot of interesting like dynamics with understanding the other characters. I mean, speaking of side characters, we have a an episode about Kunimitsu um, that is mm. that is told as if it's the story of Little Red Riding Hood. I do not know why, but, you know, sure. Mm-hmm. It, it has a very funny kind of end in a way um, in terms of how she uses her magic and everything. But the plot is so out there and it's like because it's this suddenly it's like a, it's a stormy day and she has to deliver this rose liquor to her great aunt who's pretty far away. But that means she gets to use her new red raincoat and she's very excited about that. But it mm-hmm. turns out that like Kunimitsu has this weird hunger for rose liquor and like must have it. Mm-hmm. I've never had it, so I don't know. Maybe it's good, I guess. But like, I don't know. I think he might have a problem. So uh, yeah, he just kept goes while he goes through the whole process of the, the same classic, you know, Red Riding Hood story. He becomes the the wolf and he sends her great aunt away and then like pretends to be her. So you can drink it and she uses her magic to turn herself a giant and then have this giant like weirdly realistic wolf head wolf head yeah, <laughs> yeah it's very funny <laughs> and do you think that kunimitsu is queer coded hmm granted he does have some interesting outfits right his fashion is is interesting his but... fashion is pretty femme in a way mm-hmm. i feel like especially in japan like that's not an indicator of of mm-hmm. queer coding mm-hmm. in the same way that like if this was a uh, maybe an american show i might think otherwise but mm-hmm. yeah like he definitely has this you know care about his appearance kind of but also like he is aggressive with women in particular you know momoko mm-hmm. yumi's mom and we see in a flashback in one episode that he like was so insistent on pursuing her that like he dragged her out of a movie theater um despite Mm -hmm. her like wishes whatever she was the one who defended herself she always has been it seems like but it we know that like even in the present day he still won't let it go yeah we even know um from an episode where we do get a glimpse of yumi in the future that he goes on to try to pursue yumi which is wild i know like it's very clear that he is a gross guy and he's meant to be yeah. seen as a gross guy especially with his his general treatment of women like all the women in his life <laughs> so yeah i i would need a little bit more like maybe him interacting with more men i guess to yeah, yeah. if any sort of any hint as to him actually being queer coded if that makes sense yeah i agree it's light what i pick up on i think it's light it's like a tinge of queer coded and honestly if anything it might just be kind of a um what like an unfair 
association between queerness and like just kind of straight perversion or something do you know what i mean like just Mm. like this is kind of a sexually messed up guy and so sometimes that manifests as as like queerness tinge and sometimes it manifests as like aggression towards women um or Mm. something like that right but anyway I, i do think that the episode about him with Little Red Riding Hood is such a weird one. And I just kept thinking, like, would we show alcohol in a show intended for, like, middle school age girls today? I don't think so. I mean, maybe. there. And, you know, later in the Heisei era, they certainly did. Like, there, is, there are episodes of Sailor Moon with alcohol. Um, yeah. which we don't talk about very often. <laughs> and it's only uh-huh. towards the beginning, but it is there. But I think today, not as much, right? What do you think? So it's hard to say because more recent Magical Girls have been for either an older audience or a younger audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, I can't imagine that's happening in Precure at all. Right, exactly. Right. (laughs) But that's a show for very young kids. I think the other thing is that now what we get are things with um, kind of alcohol tropes like drinking tropes that being said there is a lot of alcohol in the new otona precure <laughs> they're, they've uh. literally been drinking every episode now that they're adults which i don't know what that means or what they're trying to say there but at least so far as of this recording but you know you have to be very careful about alcohol in a kid's show generally speaking and there's definitely been a lot of changes in what we expect from children's shows since yumi came out right because this show has a lot of other things that we would never see in a kid's show today. I wonder if it's just like now mostly like the things that happen to make characters drunk without them actually being drunk is a kind of a thing that we see more now than anything else. But even that's rare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, I do feel like they show that alcohol is very desirable, right? Like it's not just that it exists. It's like everyone wants it. It's good. Mm -hmm. That's the takeaway. Yeah. That's why I think that the final scene of that episode, we have like all the adults come together to share in this liquor as a, in a, on a picnic and they all immediately get trashed. They all mm-hmm. look so ridiculous and embarrassing. And the kids there with their sodas are like, anyway. So it does feel like they were trying to kind of at the last minute push the image that like, okay, adults go wild for this stuff, but it's actually really bad and makes you look foolish. So you can stay away from that. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you. I think that was the attempt. I'm not sure it was successful. I think that at the end of the day, the alcohol comes out looking pretty good. Hmm. I am allergic to alcohol. I can't drink at all. Oh, okay. So I don't know. I, I do feel like I notice things like that even more. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I am myself What's it called? I, I turn red really quickly when I drink. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Often called Asian flush. That doesn't actually affect right, all Asians, right. but but that's I am one of those. So, you know, it's like it affects a lot of the population. So it's just like a normal thing. But in any case, I generally just don't like alcohol. Like it's fine. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll drink it if offered. And if I like the taste, it's like all right. But most of the time I'm just like not gonna choose it, you know. So so for me, it's just like seeing a lot of people drinking it is like oh these people might have a problem (laughs) i know yeah the great aunt was funny because she starts dancing right when she drinks yeah her character design reminded me a little bit of another show that is also studio piero i think 
which is Spoon Obachan. I think that's what it's called. Spoon Obasan. It's -hmm. based on like a Norwegian novel. I can't think of any other shows that have like a lot of drinking like that. Yeah. Um, especially for kids, <laughs> but this show, right. this show did a lot of things that were unusual, even at the time for children. And it was a problem, but yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so speaking of which, should we say what else is problematic here? Well, I guess I was wondering if you want to talk about any other uh, episodes oh, before we get episodes? to that. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. Well, what was your favorite? Now, granted, I think it's mostly because of the animation. I really like the episode with the bees. <laughs> oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So that was the one where they're chasing after the golden bird, right? Mm-hmm. So Yumi hears the story from her grandfather about this legendary golden bird. She uses her magic to create one, but everyone sees it and thinks it's the real thing. And so they go after it. And it's just like this fiendish hunt for this silly thing. Even her father gets involved. And I believe we had Tsuyoshi and Kenta like knock over a beehive and it just goes wild in the forest. And there's this huge, very wildly well-animated bee chase scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, eventually Yumi's able to kind of wrangle everyone uh, aside and uses her magic when no one is looking to uh, get the bees back home safely and everyone and they're like wow we were really dumb why were we doing this <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. it was a silly episode but it was fun I think that I liked more like specific scenes and like overall episodes there are very few that like I felt like oh I'm satisfied with how this ended you know it was just mostly <laughs> yeah, it's mostly like wow that happened <laughs> huh I did like 16 I liked the the Kenta's like first love episode that was that was sweet right like it was it was a kind of mm-hmm. sweet little thing of of their friendship and and where they stand and stuff so it's that was charming I guess yeah that story also happens in the manga the manga is maybe what you would expect overall it's it was made based on the show not the Mm -hmm. other way around so in a way i feel like it's just extra promotional material for the show and not necessarily like having so much depth of its own but it is sweet to see some of the um key stories drawn Mm. um in in the comic style and that's one of the ones that's in there it's two volumes it's pretty quick sounds kind of like what they what they do for Precure and what they do for other other series like that that are TV based rather than adaptations. Right. Yeah. Of the Studio Piero show, uh, Magical Girl shows, the only one that they adapted from a manga was Persia. Mm-hmm. Did you get to watch the OVA with the four of them? I have not yet. No, I do want to obviously cover that at some point, maybe do a bonus episode. But it's um, it is definitely a, another sign of like, <laughs> I mean, what we'll talk about with this show is like the show was canceled early due to the content and due to the the wane of interest in magical girls at this time and then seeing that ova which is like could not be more different from what the shows them, themselves were uh, is so fascinating yes i do like it mm-hmm. it is very different it does sort of i don't know this for sure but it sort of feels like it was created to appeal to the show's male fans not necessarily the women fans that makes sense and i will say that even though i I know this is self-contradictory and a little bit ridiculous but 
I love that Yumi doesn't transform into an adult in most of the show. And then I kind of actually do love that in the OVA, you get to see her transform into an adult once. (laughs) So, you know, you do, you get it a little bit and it's fun when she's being a hero and fighting aliens with the other three girls. And it's not like a way to explore, I don't know, you know, having inappropriate romantic attachments to other adults or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the OVA came from a love of the characters and it does make sense that if being an OVA does have a, uh, an appeal to an older audience and, and all that, that's, that's pretty common. And um, I mean, this, this show itself was also doing that. So. Well, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think it's also a sign of what was happening around the eighties in general, you know, Minky Momo is another example of this. Actually, in fact, mm-hmm. I think people credit Minky Momo with kind of starting the trend of this, you know. So okay. it's, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of unfortunate, but it's part of the, the history of the genre you have to acknowledge, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. For, no, it's really interesting. It's mm-hmm. not a part of the genre that's my favorite, but it's definitely an interesting part of the story. Yeah. Before we get into the finale and stuff, I do want to talk a little bit about the episodes about Yumi's parents. Uh Uh-huh. Yumi's parents are very interesting. (laughs) We have a few of them, right? Um, But, you know, generally they are often involving um, them fighting for some reason. Sometimes it makes sense and it's like, oh, this person started it and then they like antagonize each other. But like, it becomes this point of stress for Yumi where she has to try to figure out how to solve the problem, how to keep her parents from splitting up. And it's like, this is a lot of stress for a child. And it's also not her responsibility. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it's presented terribly, but it is a little bit like I would want the show to be clearer hmm. that it's not her responsibility. Yeah. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely, like, for example, you know, um, like, Don Kichi, her grandfather, is always like, oh, they'll make up in the end. You don't have to do anything about it. But it does feel like for several of these episodes that, like, if Yumi doesn't step in, that they're really going to split, you know? It does. Yeah. And, you know, it's not clear to me, or I don't know, I guess I would say I oscillate back and forth between, like, is this a realistic depiction of long-term partnership like of course people do fight or is this like an inappropriate focus on her parents as characters that creates sort of uh weird stuff for yumi i I mean i think maybe both are true but Hmm. i mean i think it's an exaggerated version of the truth if that makes sense like Mm -hmm. you know there's certainly couples like this right but the way that Yumi has to, or, well, she feels like she has to handle the situation and everything. It is interesting that, like, this is happening because it's a plot for Yumi, but at the same time, it's like, they turn out differently, right? So, like, for example, the first big fight, um, they fight because her mom burnt her cooking, her father made a mistake in the front, they fight over each other's jobs, and then they say, okay, I'm going to do your job, you're going to do my job, Yumi, you called me mom before, but now I'm dad he's now mom whatever and like there's this weirdness from that and the fight just keeps escalating and yumi tries to solve the problem um by uh, i can't remember who gives her the idea to make them jealous of each other so she uses Uh her magic to create like 
potential affair partners uh-huh. to like seduce <laughs> them. It's so wild. And she sets it up so that they both see each other possibly meeting this like other person that might be more their style or whatever like and they of course have another fight and things get even worse and that's where like she uses her magic to create this clock that sends them back in time to like when they realized that they were the ones for each other and like it was interesting and also very fun to watch the scenes in the 70s animated in the 80s but like also, mm-hmm. yeah, it's so much stress for Yumi. She doesn't have to go through all that. And like, in you know, she's trying to help also. But again, it's yeah. like, this is not this is not her fight. This is not her problem. I know. Yeah. But as a sidebar, yeah. that's also an example of like, Yumi being possibly overpowered, so to speak. Like, wait a minute, she can create a clock that allows people to go back in time. Like, <laughs> how else might we use that? But anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, she can't use it ever again, right? That's the rule. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> I just mean, like, you know, sometimes you're like, well, you're very powerful and you're mostly using this to um, make a circus, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the other thing is like, she gets this kind of notion from from Kakimaru and Kishimaru that like she is somehow chosen by the the land of flowers as if she has some kind of mission but like there's but no mission like, there's no mission for most of it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so no I know in yeah. from a western adventure tropes point of view there's no there's like a call to adventure but then there's no adventure which honestly I live like I'm I'm here for that in old magical girls before they were so often heroines, Mm -hmm. but it is odd. It does strike me as like, uh, almost like a little something's missing, but I'm down. I mean, it's fine. It's like for, for it to be like, Hey, we, we got these powers. Um, here, here you go. Have fun. No reason. It's fine. Like, that's totally cool. I don't mind that, but like, obviously they imply there's a reason. And then the reason does not show up until the very end. So episode 24 out of 25. Right. So it is just like confusing that way. And then the rules are, I think interesting because they do have limits, right? You know, there are certain things that other Majiko might usually do that she can't do, um, including mm-hmm. age up or whatever. Like, she can't change how she looks, but she can, like, change her outfit or something. I, I do think it comes from her being, like, a, an artist as well, in a way. Like, that she, she can't uh-huh. come up with all sorts of wild things. But it's just, like, <laughs> sometimes, yeah, it's like, wait, what does this do? And it's, it's interesting, mm-hmm. the ways that she tries to solve the problem. But, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I did want to mention the final episode that they have together, which is 23. Um, mm-hmm. I think this is the maybe best done episode, but still, like, I'm not sure about it kind of thing. Because this is the episode where basically there's a problem because there's another flower shop that's opening in town and it looks mm-hmm. bigger than theirs and it looks like they're putting a lot of money into things. So, Yumi's mom wants to try to figure out what to do. Her father's like, oh, it's fine. Just leave it alone. And she's like, wow, you've really become an old man, haven't you? And she decides to consult Kyohei, who is, you know, a younger guy, has a few bright ideas and stuff. And he is an employee of the flower shop, so he knows what's up. He understands the gravity of the situation. And so she goes to meet him. (laughs) But she does so in secret at night. And so her father is like, what? is going on here and sneaks out to follow her sees momoko and kyohei together 
uh, we later see that Kenta is also there, but he didn't see Kenta. Uh-huh. Um, but he's like, oh my God, like she's cheating on me with this younger guy, which also, again, question about Kyohei's age, because if she's uh-huh. even, if he's potentially a partner for her, then what is Yumi doing? Like feeling things right. like forever. But anyway, so like he goes all wild about this. They have a big fight and then he leaves and he like leaves, leaves and goes to live with his dad. And he's trying to become like Kyohei, which is really weird, but he's like trying to become more athletic and he's really bad at it because that's just not his thing. Uh, So he goes back to doing what he loves and what ends up happening, which is kind of sweet, is that like Yumi tries to solve the problem and the problem of the relationship is kind of put aside for a moment. But it was during the fight that like her mother had said, don't you remember the play that we did when we were kids? And he doesn't remember. He like Mm. remembers the wrong thing and she's very upset about it. Now that things have cooled down a little bit, he decides to give advice about the flower shop through Yumi. So he would tell Yumi what to do. Yumi would give the idea to her mom and they would implement it. And they tried a whole bunch of new things and it ended up being great for the business. And the new shop closed down. (laughs) And it's during that that, you know, Yumi hears a story about how her uh, from her mother about how they were in Romeo and Juliet when they were kids. And it was a disaster because she couldn't remember her lines. And, you know, it's like this very cute moment and this cute thing. And also we find out that they've known each other since they were in elementary school. Mm -hmm. But clearly something that was very important to her at the time and still now even though they've gotten a lot older and they they're thinking about like oh have we really grown far apart am i i guess i'm an old woman now whatever she still has the outfit from the play which is interesting mm-hmm. and yumi decides to wear it herself in order to uh basically pretend to be her mom in the past i guess mm-hmm. to get her father mm-hmm. out of the out of his grandfather, uh, her grandfather's house. And then she uses her magic to turn them back into Romeo and Juliet. And they like reenact the scene, like the famous scene. It's really silly, but really sweet. And so I thought it was like the best way to do this, but also this was like very last minute. And I don't know if it was necessary in the first place, (laughs) but it was like, Uh okay, uh that's interesting that with them, it's always like, I know we're always fighting now, but don't you remember in the past when everything was fine? <laughs> so uh-huh. I think that can be a dangerous message. Yeah. Yeah. But but otherwise, it was uh, cute. It, it was an innocent scene, right? An innocent episode, in a way. Yeah, it's very cute. It's not at all clear to me that her parents should stay together, but maybe they <laughs> should. I don't know. No, I know. I totally agree. It's like, mm, maybe we'll see what happens in the future for them, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, so. I also just like a school play scene. Like it reminded yes. me of the card chapter Sakura school play. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Romeo and Juliet is used a lot. I mean, not just in uh, magical girl shows from Japan, but in a lot mm-hmm. of Japanese shows in general. And it's always interesting to see how it's utilized. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get to the finale? I don't think so i mean some of the other things i want to talk about are in the problematic category so we'll still get to a few of my important episodes so um in that case let's just talk about the the ending here so spoilers for anyone who doesn't want to know how it ends after 23 episodic episodes um (laughs) (laughs) so the show ended in august right episode 24 aired on august 15th and then 
episode 25 aired on August 29th. There was a break in between a kind of special airing episode that like they like played old scenes and stuff at the request of fans. So yeah, so it's like the hottest part of winter, right? It's August. And episode 24 starts with it being nighttime and suddenly it's snowing. Obviously, that's not normal for August weather in Japan. So mm -hmm. like at first people are like, well, this is weird, but okay, let's enjoy the snow. It's not common at this time. Kakimaru and Keshimaru are both very concerned and the snow never stops. So it just keeps going all through the next night. So they wake up the second day and it's like just absolutely wild how much snow there is everywhere to the point where like it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically the fairies kind of figure out that this has to definitely do something with, with the, the land of flowers where they're from. So they have to kind of figure out what's going on there, which means they have to go there. And if they go, they might not come back. And so when they explain this to Yumi, she offers to go with them again with the knowledge that she might not come back. So at this point, the snowfall has caused a power outage. So basically, yeah, everyone is at Yumi's house. Also, her grandfather is there because the snowfall actually completely destroyed his house. Imai, the, mm -hmm. the camel is there. So everyone's there. Fukudo Koji, she has central heating in her house, but once the power outage happens, suddenly she is very cold and hungry. So they had gone out trying to find food, but all the restaurants are closed. So just for that context, so she's in her room, everyone else is downstairs, including Kyohei and Kenta. Um, they're playing games, trying to keep themselves entertained or whatever. So she creates the portal to the land of flowers. And when doing so, basically you have to like draw the portal on a piece of paper and then say a spell and then the portal opens. So they go in, but just as that's happening, Kenta goes up to check on Yumi because Yumi's the only one upstairs in her room while everyone else is downstairs. Uh, and when he does so, he sees the picture and then he gets sucked in screaming. So everyone else goes mm -hmm. upstairs. And they also get sucked into the portal. As that happens, they all scream, which gets um, Fukudo Koji's attention. So she and Kunimitsu go inside. Of course, Fukudo Koji eats up all their food before they go into Yumi's room. Uh -huh. And also, at this point, they see a sketchbook and they see a bunch of slippers around the sketchbook. But they also get sucked inside the portal. So basically, like, there's no lock, I guess. I don't know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Basically, all the main cast of the show are now in the Land of Flowers. And we mostly see, like, Yumi, she does meet up with Kenta, explain what on earth is going on, and then they find the elder who explains, along, among with all, like, all the other fairies, so many fairies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, they're very cute so it's, it's great mm -hmm. so cute yes but uh yeah the elder explains that the queen is asleep and because of that everything has become winter in this world as well so it's kind of like become a desert and all the flowers are wilted there are these giant bugs it's not clear if the bugs are there because of this condition or not but there are a mm -hmm. lot of giant bugs just absolutely nightmare fuel um <laughs> But they entrust her with, with the quest to catch these uh, silver drops, which are at the very top of this mountain. And of course, it's like a very much a, a big adventure, if you will. Over time, they run into everyone else. Kunimitsu and Fukudo Koji, who had come in last, they don't meet up with everyone else. They meet up with the fairies first, who give them the same story. 
and Kunimitsu hearing, oh, silver drops, this must be valuable, he gets the idea that, oh, they should get there first and get the silver drops to sell them for money. Mm-hmm. So that's his new goal. So we have like this very large, long adventure across the two episodes of them trying to get uh, to the silver drops. Kunimitsu kind of betrays everyone, including Fukuro Koji, and gets mm-hmm. there first, only to find that the silver drops are basically like crystallized dew drops on these um, clovers. And he's very disappointed, of course, but he collects them anyway. And just as he's leaving, he gets attacked by another giant bug. Fukuro Koji rescues him, despite the fact that he betrayed her. And um, they kind of make up a little bit, but then he also apologizes for being bad this whole time and gives the silver drops to Yumi and everyone's like, okay, Yumi, it's your mission. You got to get to the queen. She uh, hang glides there mm-hmm. and ends up dropping the silver drops right over the queen who is in this giant tulip and the day is saved. Um, and so, you know, she tells Yumi like, please don't ever forget your love of flowers and everyone wakes up back in flower town. But yeah, so what did you think of this uh, finale? Well, I enjoyed it. I mean, you know, it's very different from the rest of the show. It is, yes. <laughs> it's definitely kind of tacked on, but I thought it was pretty fun. It's not really inconsistent with a lot of other magical girl shows Yeah. in the 70s and 80s. Like, I remember when we watched Loon Loon for the last mm-hmm. episode I was on, it also has kind of... A totally different plot in the last two episodes. Yeah. It also involves going to the Flower Kingdom, I think is maybe even what it's called, but you know, like in mm-hmm. just another world. So, you know, I feel like it's a little bit par for the course and it's pretty fun. I have a lot of questions about what was happening behind the scenes um, at Studio Piero or, or at the various companies involved. And I haven't really been able to get those questions answered in a satisfactory way. Like, Studio Piero has like a monthly newsletter and there's a big hardback book that has all of them in there. And so I went back to the month where Yumi ended and it it does seem to indicate that this was earlier than they had planned. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know exactly why, right? right? But I think that if they did have to do this kind of suddenly, like they did mm-hmm. okay. So I'm not sure how much of this is like super accurate, but mm-hmm. at the very least on um, the Japanese Wikipedia page for Pastel Yumi, they mention, you know, the the problematic elements that we'll get to mm-hmm. were a major factor as well as the general like lack of interest in magical girls at the time. Like there was a kind of waning interest for kids, but a lot of parents were upset, it seems, with the content of Pastel Yumi, understandably. It looks like they edited scenes in the show, particularly uh, scenes in the bath, uh-huh. to add steam and things to. They wanted to like do a kind of more classic magical girl series, but also try to target an older audience uh-huh. with that, and also just the general scenarios being so different from the past uh, Studio Piero shows. I think that was also part of why, according to Wikipedia, which is not perfect, you know, and there's no particular citation for this claim, but. It says it went as far as of female staff having complaints about and concerns about the show. Okay, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. 
basically with that um, and the the viewer ratings being poor so this is a two core show as opposed to the um, four cores that we got from mommy and persia and then i believe it would have been three cores for emmy mm. so i guess do you have anything else to say about the finale before we jump into the full range of problematic elements of <laughs> I don't think so. You okay. know, I enjoyed the ending. It's, mm -hmm. I think it's fine. Yeah. It's cute. It's sweet. It's one thing that was interesting is like the very, very end after they all wake up and she realizes that Kakimaru and Keshimaru are gone mm -hmm. and they talk to her, but like, they're not there. Right. So it's, it's almost like if it's like in her mind, but they say, you know, they decided to stay back home and you know they're going to say goodbye for now but they'll see her again someday and then she just kind of goes on her merry way <laughs> yeah. i know she's not she's not as sad as sometimes they are when they lose their sidekick right. characters she for seems sure. to understand that's interesting so with that so as i've already kind of insinuated there's a lot of things going on in the show that are targeting an older male audience and again, we have to stress that um, Yumi is 10 years old, so uh -huh. she is in elementary school. She does not have a developed body in any way, and yet uh -huh. we see her naked a lot. A lot. I mean, it starts off this way where, like, the very first episode, the way that she finds out that the magic wears off is that she had been wearing a dress on stage in front of a lot of people that she had made with magic um, uh -huh. for this flower show thing. And it disappears because the time limit went up. And so she's left in her underwear. Of course, this is just mortifying. Would be for anyone, really. Uh -huh. And so that's how we kind of start. Literally the next episode, the same thing happens uh -huh. right off the bat. And then after that, the main thing is that we see almost every episode, a scene of Yumi in the bath. It's always a scene where she's talking to Kakimaru and Keshimaru. And... On the one hand, sure, this is one of those places where she could actually talk to her fairy partners and not right. be bothered. But at the same time, it's like her bedroom also exists. This is not necessary. We are seeing so much of her and it's weird. And like, it's a known thing. They openly admit to it being a thing that they have a lot of scenes of her naked. This is understood. Likewise, there are a lot of panty shots of her. You know, mm -hmm. her skirt is very short. There's certainly ways to avoid this particular problem. But yeah, they decided that they needed to appeal to um, men with a 10-year-old girl's panties and nude body. Yeah. yeah, so I don't think I need to explain why that's bad. <laughs> no. Yeah, especially because, you know, the only other Piero series I've seen is Mommy. It is like so jarring because in, you know, mommy, we have like, I think one or two scenes where we see use underwear, but it's like in a scene that like, it almost can't be avoided because of like the angle or something. So you could almost excuse it. It's still a little weird, but like, it's not weird for this time. Right. But like, no, this is like stands out. It's, it's really a lot. Like you even see your underwear in her like magic spell scene right it's it's weird i think hmm, like it's obviously bad right that goes without saying i think it's interesting to keep this in mind as to like how shows that exclusively target an older audience are like moving forward like it helps that to make more sense i don't know yeah. 
Mm-hmm. If you see this is a show that existed, you know, in the 80s, then later shows that have like even worse things happening to elementary school girls make sense in terms of like where this particular section of animation was going, even if it's bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely you get, I, I guess they had already started by this time as manga, but I think of Esper Mommy and yes. Nanako SOS as kind of like the examples from this decade that are like truly for men, mm-hmm. male audiences, but using magical girl tropes. And this feels like it's a little bit in between or like that they were trying to capture that audience while also still making like a normal magical yeah. girl show with its original intended audience. Right. So Esper Mommy is a show for boys specifically. So boys right. and, and obviously. And Nanako SOS is too, right? Yeah. Uh, so Nanako SOS, I believe, does have an older male audience, if that makes sense. So you're saying like Shonen versus Seinen magazines, yes. for example? Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, I have not watched a lot of Esper Mommy, but it was shocking the first time I watched it. Oh, it's extremely shocking. <laughs> yeah, um, I was I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, another factor, I think, as well is, um, yeah, like you said, uh, Minky Momo is another unfortunate mm-hmm. originator of this where, like, they noticed the clear audience kind of naturally coming up. Like, even if a show isn't intended for that male audience, the fact that it, like, if it's big enough or like there's enough of a a response from them for the studio to notice and unfortunately kind of makes a little bit of at least capitalistic sense for them to try to move things in a different direction yeah i mean that's definitely what they were responding to and you know well i don't know maybe it's not worth comparing exactly but you know when i watch minky momo and you get that transformation sequence every episode and I mean, mm. it's it's practically, you know, cutie honey. Like it's it's really like they're mm. showing her body and the transformation every time. And sometimes I th- trying to put myself in the creator's shoes, which is a dangerous game because Yumi doesn't have a transformation sequence, which gives them an excuse to show Minky Momo naked every episode. Like is this other stuff? somehow coming in as like a compensation for that Mm. now that doesn't rationalize it or make it okay just it's an interesting experience loving a show like this and having to contend with that angle on it right Mm -hmm. which as someone who likes a lot of shows from the 70s and 80s like it's something that i have to think about a lot and and there's not much i've never come up with that much good to say about it right it just seems mm-hmm. like kind of an example of rape culture that luckily i do think happens less now yeah i think what's happened is that like over time there has been this uh, greater push of the extremes where obviously precure is one thing that's like for a very very young audience and mm-hmm. sure there are you know adult fans who are gross about it but even they know they're not the target right right and then we have shows that are explicitly for an older audience that get very, right. very gross. Everything. They do everything, right? <laughs> as gross as possible without legally being pornographic. There, there's definitely an extreme there now, I think. I don't think it makes the, the, the gross stuff good, but it's like, at least it's in that corner mm-hmm. for now, right? No, I agree. It's like, yeah. there may be a time and a place for that. And it's definitely not here. So right. if it's over there, that's better than it being here. 
yeah i mean personal preference i would rather it not be there at all but you know if it if it absolutely must if if we have to live with that in this moment you know or have that as part of the history you know yeah yeah Yeah, so i think and i think the other thing obviously you know nudity does not equal sexuality there are definitely ways to have and present nudity without it being well titillating and this mm-hmm. like not that example right <laughs> it's like <laughs> <laughs> right however any individual viewer responds to it i think it's clear when you're watching it that that was on the creator's minds right right like it's not incidental mm-hmm. and that's something that you really you have to take in yeah there's even like this scene where um kenta needs to talk to yumi and knocks on the bathroom window and she just opens mm-hmm. it and they're having a conversation while she's naked and it's like what is happening here and then like she realizes what's going on and like calls him a pervert and stuff but like it's still like why did any of this happen <laughs> right why did someone draw this yeah right yeah this definitely like that's the main thing to always keep in mind it's like okay people had to draw this stuff people had to write this stuff and people had to approve all of this and all that so i mean it's interesting to know even contemporarily that there were issues um that people mm-hmm. had with it it's really interesting to hear that there may have been female staff who spoke up about it because that is one of the ways in which it's problematic right is that it's creating a potentially toxic work environment in the studio and so the idea that people were empowered enough to say something is interesting yeah yeah the way it's written it's not clear if it was at the time or like after the fact uh, uh-huh, yeah uh-huh. i i can imagine i mean even now it's like difficult to be a woman in animation so i can imagine it might not have been easy at that time yeah no i'm sure that's right but still it's it's interesting to at least know that that information is out there somewhere i definitely would if possible like to do more potential research on it <laughs> Um, It also brings up one of my kind of research questions in this period, which is tracking just how many women were involved in the creation of these things that are for a female audience. I mean, it's obvious when you look at who the comic creators are that for a very long time, it was mostly men. Of this set of series, Persia was the only one that was created originally by a woman, and it's my least favorite, which is kind of too bad. Yeah, you know, there's like tropes tropes and stuff of the, the genre but There's racism yeah, well, i think yes, is probably yes. the easiest way Obviously. to say it right <laughs> sure i yeah. think like the other magical girl shows in this series persia has some of the weird sexualization problems but then also has the problem that she is from africa and you get all those representations yeah yeah so at least we don't have that here well, uh, at the very least, the character designer of Yumi was a woman, right? Mm. Yeah, she worked on all of the shows, but this was the only one she did mm. character design on. Huh. Yeah, she like directed quite a few episodes as well. So we have a few. There, there are a few. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, now I think the mm-hmm. writer side is all male. Uh-huh, uh-huh. from what I can tell. Yeah, uh, but anyway, I guess to get more into other problematic aspects, 
um, kind of similar in the the sexism department. We have an episode about dieting because, of course, we do. Uh-huh. It's episode uh-huh. seven. So episode seven, again, a wild episode because it starts with Yumi coming home from school and she overhears a conversation between her father and Kyohei talking about a woman who has just left a customer and talking about her body, which is like already bad. This talking about uh-huh. a female customer is weird and then you're doing it in front of your daughter and Uh yeah her father makes a comment about how like she's not thin at all and she just gets really angry obviously and goes to her room and like decides to weigh herself and she starts stressing a lot about her weight and wanting to lose weight and wanting to stop eating and it's yeah it's just like very very bad Uh other people around her you know, they do say like, well, you're a kid, you don't have to worry about that stuff, you know, you're still young. And then like Fukuro Koji, who is, uh, we should mention, I if I had a mention already, she is a fat character. And so mm-hmm. she is like always seen eating and she loves eating and she is telling Yumi that it's it's fine to enjoy eating, but that's not necessarily seen or at least taken by her as being um, a good bit of advice. And I think the show presents her size as part of her characterization as kind of antagonistic, right? Or like, oh, yeah. And overindulgent. Like, it's definitely shown as like she's rich and therefore fat mm-hmm. in a weird, problematic way. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a lot to say about her episode, right? But yeah, Fukuro Kochi's episode talks about how when she was young, she loved flowers. And when we see her flashback, she is thin and perceived as more beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think she mm-hmm. would be beautiful in her current you know, size if she was being presented that way. I think she's the only other character that we see panty shots of, which is weird. Yeah. In that case, it's always done as a source of humiliation, right? Yeah. yeah, like her episode shows that like, you know, she had a love and she she had grown these flowers and gave this bouquet to this boy that she liked. And it, there was a bee in the bouquet that stung him and that just ruined her romance prospects forever, which is a wild story. And also apparently explains her allergies to flowers, which is not how that right. works. Which is not how allergies work. <laughs> it's like, okay. so So that was all really wild. So I don't really have a lot to say about her episode in that regard, but that's her backstory. In any case, Mm -hmm. she's, you know, very rich and she's overindulgent. And also like she has this tragic past with romance and has given up in a way, it seems, Mm -hmm. which is like, yeah, just in general. Yeah, there's a lot of fat phobia surrounding her character, obviously. And then more fat phobia in episode seven, because when you mean like has her nightmares about being fat, she is very large. The final kind of bit of the episode is that Kenta had come to her with cookies that he had baked for her. And that was like the last straw for her. I mean, she was literally like, I have to leave my house so that I can diet properly because everyone is trying to feed me. And she gets upset at Kenta and like finally reveals for the first time to someone other than her fairies that she's trying to lose weight. Um, And so Kenta talks to everyone else and they're like, oh, I guess the stuff that we said right in front of her really affected her. That's weird. Mm -hmm. And so their solution is that like when she comes home, they all spot her and they start kind of 
casually having a fake conversation about how Yumi looks great and doesn't need to lose weight. And it's like supposed to be to make her feel better, right? Like even with all that, like it still shows her like thought process and stuff. And I think that it's very easy to uh, for a kid watching the show to internalize her feelings and apply yeah. them to themselves. So it's just, yeah, all around not good. Yeah, it's like they try to say the right things, but I'm just not sure that's the lasting impression that they give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it was just a rough, rough episode all around. I don't think I have anything else to say. We just kind of covered all the stuff with Fukuro Koji's general characterization. I mean, she's basically kind of shown as uh, or presented as a villain in a way, especially in the very beginning. And mm-hmm. so her being this like fat character who is a villain and like we should specify Kenta is also a fat character, but like she is mm-hmm. a lot larger than him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's like cute kid fat, but she is like, mm-hmm. oh, you don't want to be this fat, right? That's, that's the idea that, that that's the kind of the message that they are presenting, unfortunately. But yeah, and then the other thing, I kind of briefly mentioned this already, specifically the episode is um, 22. This is the final clip show episode where this mysterious figure puts Yumi in this magic box and sends her throughout her own past, present, and future. And mm. when they see her future, we get this very short scene of her in high school and you would think oh this is exciting to see you know just even for a moment what she looks like in high school and she goes on the tram right clearly like trying to get to school and suddenly we see that like a hand touches her butt mm. she immediately violently like throws the guy off and it turns out it's kunimitsu of all people and we have this like this very gross scene of him talking about how she has grown to be so sexy and it is like gross all around like she does definitely i mean she beats him up right which is like he deserves that but the episode is trying to talk about how like commenting on her ability to have a partner um based on the Mm. fact that she has always been a very violent girl and it's like Mm. okay but that violence was deserved i don't know what you're trying to say here i don't think we ever really see a moment of her being violent and it's not justified right yeah so it's just like oh she doesn't approach things in a ladylike way i guess is what they're trying to say i think that's right and you know i like that about yumi i guess Mm -hmm. i mean this particular example is not i don't think it's an example of anything Mm -hmm. when you sort of react just appropriately to a weird situation But to whatever extent she's not, like, quote-unquote, the right kind of girl, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's what's great about her. But the show seems conflicted. Or at least it wants to present that there's a limit. Like, okay, you can play baseball, but don't be violent towards men who are interested in you, I guess. Yeah. Is that the message? Oh, my God. It's, like, so weird. I don't know. And it's also, like... Okay, what she does, when she's a kid, a lot of stuff is more okay, it seems uh-huh, like. Uh-huh, right. And then it's like, well, now by the time she's in high school, she should know better than to be you violent. You that. Yeah. And it's like, no, that was the correct reaction. I wish I was that kind of girl when I was in high school. Right, right. <laughs> Like, come on. They show it happening, and it's like, what the hell is this? 
but then like right. yeah to have that kind of be the final message of the scene is just really weird mm-hmm. yeah for me i think that was like generally all the problematic stuff but is there anything else that you can think of no i think that's right i think that the relationship with kyohei we kind of already mentioned stays pretty much on the right side of things like yeah. i think it's fine mm-hmm. for her to have a crush on him where we get into trouble in other series is when there's any indication that the crush is reciprocated or that you know they transform and then the guy doesn't know who the person is right. or you know like we avoid a lot of that stuff which is nice yeah for um, sure even though we get plenty of other problematic content <laughs> yes instead. yes um is is a mixed bag it's a little odd in that way i don't know there's a lot going on again i think that the end result of the writing with the romance is really good it's kind of the ideal mm-hmm. but everything else there's just so much <laughs> it just like yeah yeah well and i would just say that for me i still love this show right like yeah. i it doesn't ruin it beyond my ability to have a lot of fun watching many of these episodes mm-hmm. which is how i felt how i feel about a lot of 70s and 80s shows and you know of course it's there and it's important to talk about yeah it's like generally it's normal to you know when you're recommending a show to someone to give warnings about problematic content but it's but in this case it's like it becomes to the point where you start to lose people that you can recommend it to right yeah yeah for sure so this 10 year old girl is naked almost every episode <laughs> other than that and it's like mm, yeah that just right. if you can it's, get past that it's like really really hard to recommend for mostly that reason yeah it's just really unfortunate and obviously like the cancellation was a sign that they had made a mistake with the show in that way right, right so i can imagine if this was ever a series to get rebooted that this would like not happen at all, right? I would expect that, if that makes sense. Like just be completely grossness free, I hope. <laughs> yeah, which I would love. I mean, I actually, I feel like we deserve that show, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot here that could be rescued. Yeah, it just makes me think of um, the most recent Melmo reboot comic, which was honestly just like a mostly like a love letter to Tessica through Melmo anyway. But like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, this comic illustrated by a woman and Melmo is like extra cute. She looks great. And her costume, her outfit has been adjusted so that there is literally no way for her to have a panty shot. And it is fantastic. Um, mm. <laughs> it just like, mm-hmm. generally, it's really not that hard to remove this stuff, right? Like it's, it's just no, not absolutely not necessary, especially in this show again, because it's like not even a thing where it's like she is in any way a sexual character, even in her romantic things it's like her romantic feelings there's never any sense of it being weirder than like well she's a 10 year old and has a normal 10 year old crush on someone yeah Mm -hmm. so it's very easy to remove (laughs) it just really is um so i guess was there anything else you wanted to say regarding yumi well you know i think we've said it i love yumi there it's not perfect obviously Mm -hmm. but i love this character I love the animation from this period and from this studio and along with mommy, this is my favorite of the four. So yeah, I definitely can't wait to watch the other, well, I guess other three, if you include Lala, but at least for this particular time period, the eighties, the other two, uh, I can't wait to watch them and compare. 
I, I guess it's ideal to watch them in order to see how the shows evolve, but definitely there is such a clear difference between Mommy and Yumi that like right. I cannot wait to figure out what on earth happened in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll be definitely interested to hear your take on Persia because there's so much problematic stuff to talk about yeah, really like I mean, maybe more than any other show from this period starting off with here's a picture of Persia she's from Africa there's already problems you know <laughs> I know I know yeah. from the very beginning yeah yeah hmm. and, and then I have a lot of affection for Emmy hmm. um, so it'll be interesting someday to hear your take on that as yeah, well I look forward to, to covering those as well great so uh, with that we are at the, the end here so um, yeah, our last question for you is, um, what Magical Girl series are you hoping to explore next that you haven't checked out yet? What a great question. Well, I think that I am headed back to the Toei Fushigi Comedy Hour next, okay. personally. <laughs> I've never watched all of Thutmose. Mm. Um, and I think that that is calling my name. So that may be Ooh, where I go next. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me again, Ayumi. Yeah. You know, I just want to say thank you for everything that you do for the fandom. Oh, thank you. I enjoy this show so much, even obviously when I'm not on it. And I know that there's lots of us out there who, uh, you know, just get a lot of joy out of what you put out into the world. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It was awesome to have you back on the podcast. You're definitely welcome back anytime. Mm -hmm. there's still so much we have not covered on the podcast from the past mm -hmm. so yeah well i'm excited to do that yeah so where can people find you and follow you to talk about pastel yumi and other magical girls well i have been doing a little bit of housekeeping around my social media lately i think many of us have <laughs> and so the place that i'm hanging out the most these days is back on tumblr i used oh. to be on tumblr and then i took a break and now i'm back um, and I have a Magical Girl Tumblr. It's showamagicalgirls.tumblr.com. Um, and you can see screen caps from what I'm watching, pictures from the comics I'm reading, and uh, I post twice a day. So come over if you're a Tumblr person. Awesome. Awesome. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, yeah, thank you again. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. I hope you do too. <laughs> Whether this was your first or last time listening, thank you so much for checking out this episode of Sparkleside Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. We hope you check out the rest of our chats, over two years of magical content and counting. And if you like what you heard, tell a friend or tell five friends or tell the whole world by talking about us online. If you use social media, don't forget to use the hashtag Sparkleside Chats when talking about and sharing the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MagicalGirlAyu, spelled A-Y-U, and you can find me at Ayushinos, A-Y-U-S-H-E-K-N-O-W-S. You can also email us at sparklesidechats at gmail.com. Did you know we also take recommendations for future guests and topics? Just fill out the form in the show notes. You can even suggest yourself if you're so bold. 
The very best free way to support the podcast is using your podcast platform to give a rating and review of our little show. This gives the big internet machines the message that they should share it with more people, and I think we all want that, don't we? You can also join the Discord server for this podcast to talk about Magical Girls 24-7, often chatting directly with me and both previous and upcoming guests of the podcast. The forever link is in the show notes as well as on the socials, so be sure to stop by. Show notes can be found on your podcast platform of choice or at our main landing page at anchor.fm slash sparkleside. If you have a few bucks, you can give a one-time donation at ko-fi.com or ko-fi.com slash ayushinos. You can also commit to a monthly membership, which grants you access to bonus episodes about Magical Girls and adjacent content such as movies, comics, and other series that Magical Girl fans tend to also love. All it takes is $5 a month, but if you want to rank up, that'll give you discounts on art commissions and monthly requests as well. Music credits, as always, are also in the show notes. Original podcast music is by Hazel. You can find her on Twitter at A Few Bruises. Thanks again for listening, and remember, you are magical forever and always. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>